Welcome to the Adventures in Growth podcast, where we share the stories of exceptional founders and leaders in startups and tech. We dive into the secrets to their success, operating a game-changing tech companies, and we share their playbooks of how they've built their careers, led outstanding teams, and designed the life they want. Subscribe to this podcast newsletter at adventuresingrowth.co to receive exclusive weekly insights to supercharge your professional and personal growth. This week, we're speaking with Leandre Johns, Chief Operating Officer at cannabis tech startup FlowHub, and previously an early general manager at Uber. In keeping with the spirit of adventures and growth, Leandre charted his course to tech leadership via a non-traditional route, working in cancer research prior to attaining an MBA at the Kellogg School of Management. Shortly after graduation, Leandre joined Uber to launch and manage the Dallas market as one of the first city GMs outside of the regional headquarters. He later worked in the public policy and vertical takeoff and landing vehicles divisions at Uber before leading operations at Metropolis and FlowHub, where he's currently the COO. In this episode, Leandre talks about public versus private approaches to problem solving, his measured approach to taking risks, and hiring well-rounded and diverse teams to fuel creativity. We also discuss the Uber DNA of data-driven innovation and moving quickly, and some of the early experimentation of different splashy offerings through the app, including Aston Martins, Barbecue, S'mores, and Helicopters. Welcome to Adventures in Growth. Let's jump in and we'll start off just sort of do a little update. And obviously, we know you've been CEO of FlowHub, so we'd love to sort of Get a sense of what FlowHub does and tell us a little bit about what you're doing there at the moment and what's the company up to. Yeah, I would say it was a little bit of a a little bit of a departure per se from like kind of a mainstream tech play for me. I'd been mostly doing and been brought mostly mainstream kind of tech, maybe consumer tech, but this is in the cannabis industry. But it's been a really good learning experience one for me because it's the first time I've been able to step into a C-suite role and have had and managed large P&Ls, but never at this C-level. So that was one of the things that, that compelled me to take this position in the first place. But yeah, I mean, it's cannabis tech. So we create POS and payment systems for dispensaries in the cannabis industry. And so our mission is to basically make cannabis accessible to everyone in the world, doing so through our technology. Nice. I'm looking forward to digging into that a little bit more. So, Leigh, you were talking before about how you think about risk and the themes throughout your career, obviously something on the horizon of, of kind of the way we live and what chemicals we take is kind of on one end of the spectrum. But like, how do you think about risk throughout your career and how's that kind of changed as you've used that lens? Yeah. So, again, kind of just looking at the current role, right? Me going into cannabis in general was me taking on another risk just similar, you know, just saying like, Hey, I'm okay with edge cases, so to speak. Like if you look at my history, obviously Uber, that was very highly regulated industry that is in my history. And I'm sure we'll speak to that a little bit more, but now we're I'm in cannabis now, which is also industry right now, still coming into its own. Obviously it's been very taboo and there's been a stigma associated with like folks who use cannabis, but that's starting to decrease now. And on the and some of why it's decreasing is because regulatory has come on, and now you have states starting to legalize cannabis. We're still waiting for the feds to pass legalization, but also safe banking in the cannabis industry for dispensaries. So 
these two industries, ride sharing, which was an industry, but now is an industry and cannabis have high levels of risk. And so that's just, I think I've gravitated to these things because throughout my educational career, maybe other career opportunities, risk has been something that I think I've been able to lean into and succeed through. So maybe it's me intentionally, but also unintentionally looking for the risky situations to go into and see how, see if I can test myself in those spaces. It's really fun, isn't it? You've gone from, you're now in what is a regular, or I guess they're still trying to figure out the regulatory framework for cannabis, right? You're seeing some states actually make it legal for both for recreation as well as medicinal. And there's other states that are lagging that. And obviously with Uber, we'll get into this, but initially you had to kind of build that regulatory framework. But you talked to us about a prior experience in healthcare, which I think shaped to your point, an understanding of yourself around risk. And you saw mentioned to us that you were in healthcare consulting. Tell us a little bit about that experience and how that helped you understand your appetite for risk and that sort of the, how you wanted to challenge yourself in a different environment. Yeah. I mean, if I honestly, if I go all the way back to just like my first experience with medicine, my godmother passed away of cancer when I was about eight, nine years old. And through that experience of just going to visit her on a weekly basis, I was my mom's best friend. I was always wondering like, why can't doctors necessarily do anything about this? Why, what medicine are they not giving her to help her improve? That made me start thinking about like, okay, what is not happening? What can I do to lean into a curative process for somebody who's at that point was terminally ill. I think there are some cancers now that people are living longer lives with, but at that point, like if this was a terminal illness that I just didn't understand. So going through school, I was like, okay, I'm going to be a physician. And then so did my pre-med work and came out of my undergrad at SMU and actually went into a lab. And so did a full year of cancer research at UT Southwestern and my whole goal was to try and cure cancer. So I'm talking to you right now here, not as a Nobel Prize winner, because I did not cure cancer because it's very difficult. But my process was using like this phage, like using phage, uh, like science in order to basically try and compartmentalize phage, like these small cells basically to, to deliver a medicine through, uh, through a process. I won't go too detailed into that. But if you can deliver it into the cancer cell, then apoptosis happens, you kill the cancer, and then away you go with the curative process. You just don't actually react to what you're telling them to do. They do whatever they want to do. For the ignorant amongst us, what is phage? What is that? What is phage? It's basically like a small cell. It's a small cell, almost like a white blood cell, except for like a phage is less like, like a white blood cell is more likely to be able to direct itself to, let's say, a virus. Right. But a phage is just kind of like in your body doing its thing and it can become a certain type of cell. But if you can control the millions of phage partic particles that are in your body, then you can inject them into the human body. Like you can, you, you can kind of artificially inject them in the human body, attached to a drug, have that drug then attached to the cancer cell, deliver basically the drug inside the cancer cell, kill the cancer cell from the inside out. So just a small cell particle. That's awesome. So you're doing a little bit of that. I guess you're applying some of that now, right? Yeah, I did that. So what happened was I did that for a year and I really, when I went into it, I was believing that, hey, this is my opportunity to try and do something, to try and make a difference. And after a year, my grant basically ran out. I was like, man, I've tried really hard to figure this thing out and it's very difficult. But what I saw was, look, I had a certain amount of money that I could even spend on trying this curative process. And at that, there wasn't much more money that I was going to be able to get to make this happen. And so from that experience, I started to realize 
in order for cancer and maybe other very like highly virulent diseases like cancer, it's not necessarily going to come from academia, that it may have to come from the private sector. The public sector is not necessarily going to be where you can experiment because you don't have an endless amount of money, where you can experiment with edgy kind of procedures and you have a finite period of time by which to do it. Whereas on the private side, capital can be a little bit more fluid. Timelines can be a bit more aggressive or lengthy, depending on how much money is in the pot for that private entity. For that private entity, and therefore, my thought was: look, this is where we're actually going to see curative processes come out for these large-scale diseases, maybe more so than in academia because of some of these limitations. And that again is where I saw that level of risk, right? Like in in the public sector, I, that risk you can't really do that because you can't. You're, you have a finite kind of amount of money, and you write the grant almost saying like, here's what I'm going to do. You need to stay within those bounds to successfully use that money and even roll over more money potentially. Private don't necessarily need all that. So the risk I was looking at, which is the risk that you can take on the private side is going to be much more than on the public. And so that's where I kind of started to say, hey, that's where I want to be because I want to be able to take those risks. Yeah, that makes sense. But it's not in. How did you end up, though, moving from the healthcare industry into an entirely different space, into the tech ecosystem? Because as you mentioned, you had that kind of strong mission-driven sense because of your loved one. What was that sort of moment where you realized healthcare wasn't for you? Like You've obviously recognized some of the dynamics in terms of funding and capital access. What else made you think, I've got to go in a different path? So from there, I ended up going to University of Michigan and I did my master's in public health again, thinking like, okay, I'm going to be able to make a big impact on public health at a large scale. And ultimately... When I came out of there, I went and did consulting at PricewaterhouseCoopers specifically in healthcare, but then ended up getting introduced to when you're in consulting, you, there's a breadth of things that you can ultimately fall into. It's whatever case kind of gets brought in front of you. And if you're available, then you go do it. I ended up in a lot of financial services cases at banks and financial institutions. And that just brought in my interest. Again, I saw that what I did see when I looked at the two spaces was the speed by which things were getting done in the financial services space and the speed by which things were getting done in the healthcare space. I mean, I was having to do a lot of interviews and a lot of diligence in the healthcare space that just took a lot of research and development. And then to get an answer or to get some, it just, it just was like glacial pace versus what I saw in financial services, just move much faster, was able to make decisions. It just was a more fluid process. And so I started to gravitate to that speed. And that was really what started turning me towards, okay, there may be more that I can do in a non-healthcare related field because I like that speed and I can get into that risk much faster with more, more aggression than I can, than I'm seeing on the healthcare space. So that's what started leading me a little bit away from healthcare and moving more into a broader business sense. And to that point, as you were evaluating your next step out of healthcare, how did you evaluate that risk of going to business school? Obviously, we were at Kellogg together. Like, how did you determine that at that moment in your career, given your appetite for risk, given your desire for a faster paced environment, that actually the, taking that stepping stone of B school would be the right move for you? And how did you mitigate some of that risk? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you're at a consulting firm. So the reality is when you're at a consulting firm and you're thinking about business school, you kind of try to set that, you start to set that path up with your partner, right? And so it's like, okay, I can, can mitigate the risk one by knowing that they'll pay for some of this. If I go to business school, like you can start mitigating that financial risk by saying, look, let's set this, 
let's set the situation up where, look, if I end up coming back here, then I will get some repayment of my loan and those kinds of things. So that helps to mitigate the risk from just a pure administrative kind of play. But for my own career trajectory, I had seen, look, I felt like, look, I have, I had a, a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. Now I was at a reputable consulting firm. Going to business school was really just like, at that point, I'm like, I'm going to business school to further my knowledge and to make myself more, more marketable across other business spaces that I may want to go into. But let's say I didn't end up going to business school. Like I felt like I had built up a nice foundation, a nice quote pedigree from a good undergrad at SMU and the University of Michigan for my master's that if I didn't end up in business school and I didn't want to stay consulting, I still was going to be able to carve a path that I still could, that the risk there really wasn't that that far on the downside impact, that, that I still had a lot of upside just given what I had built up at that point. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And I think, as you say, that that safety net of consulting is very transferable in terms of skill set, right? You really round out your skill set when you're working with different clients, different industries. It's a good grounding outside of a business school environment, isn't it? That's right. And like any risk, right? Like when I look at when I look at risk, it's generally about okay, what do I have to gain? Like what is my upside? And then what's what's kind of like the bottom of the downside? Like how far could this go down if this risk were to hold, right? If this thing actually happened. And again, like if I didn't go to business school, I knew what that risk would the actual like low point would actually be. And it just didn't feel like, okay, I can take this because the upside was sky's the limit kind of thing. You go to business school, especially a good one like Kellogg, and you set yourself up for a lot of future opportunities. And if I don't, well, I'll still continue to kind of move forward in my career, maybe in a different pace, or maybe it's a bit more one track than I would have liked. But again, when weighing the risk, the upside versus the downside, which I do in every kind of risk case, it was a pretty easy decision. The way you describe it almost reminds me of kind of the classic VC thinking around asymmetric upside, right? If you invested in something, the worst you can do is lose 100% of it or 100% of your time in business school, right? But the asymmetric upside of being able to, and we'll get to what you've done since business school, but sky's the limit and you can get orders of magnitude more than that mad investment. So it's such a cool way that you describe that. Yeah. And that's, yeah, we can definitely get into that, but that is, that's it, right? Like you, you definitely want to... I mean, you're going to get bullish on the things that you feel like have substantial upside and it makes it worth taking the risk almost every time. Yeah, I think one one of the things you said that was pretty pretty interesting, you were talking about risk and you were talking about speed and it feels like a lot of those things are, are kind of tied in together, right? You talked about the horizon you had to test things out and whatnot. We've talked before about kind of consulting speed versus startup speed and love to kind of understand is a lot of our listeners are thinking about how they are applying maybe what they've learned in professional services or banking consulting, et cetera, and how they might apply that into tech. We've talked about how maybe a consulting firm will take three weeks to get to 95% of the answer at, and at a startup, maybe it's spent an afternoon to get 51% of the answer and the difference between ready, fire, aim, and aim, fire, right? Like, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit about thinking about that consulting experience in business school and how you thought about making the transition to the tech world. Yeah, it was funny. For me, the way I... I don't know if it was on purpose all the time, but I definitely have and take somewhat of a contrarian approach to maybe my own like career decisions because going into consulting was not a natural next step coming out of Kellogg. 
excuse me, coming out of the University of Michigan. That was a master's in public health. I was really taking a lot of classes in the health services administration side. And most people, 98% of the people that graduated from that degree went into hospital administration. The hospital administration, or you went to a big payer like United Health Group or something like that. I think I was one of maybe four, five out of the class that ended up in consulting. And I think I may have been the only one who went to a firm like PwC. I think the other folks I remember going into like Chartist Group or Keystone, and they were, they are healthcare consulting companies. And so for me, it was like, I, I wanted to step away from where the herd was kind of going and say, Hey, I, I think I can carve a different path at a larger, but it also, again, it was kind of a risk play, right? Like if this lands and I end up at PwC, it opens up many more possibilities than if I go to a consulting firm that is focused specifically on healthcare consulting. I'm going to stay right in my swim lane and I'm generally, that's the path that I'm carving versus PwC gave me an opportunity to even step into financial services cases and others, right? So that was kind of, again, my appetite for risk, my, my kind of steer towards this contrarian view. And so going to, to business school was also... There weren't many people at PwC necessarily like honed because a lot of them had already either been or they were going to be lifetime kind of consultants. And so for me, I was like, look, there's more that I want to do. So staying in Chicago, because I was in Chicago at the time, was something that I was focused on. And there was no other school that makes sense from a business school perspective in, in Chicago than Kellogg. So Kellogg was, and it also just fit the type of person I am, highly collaborative, very social, and just the student environment when I went to visit, I was like, okay, this is for me. And was blessed enough to get in. So going into Kellogg was really, again, for me, like the appropriate risk to take. Coming through and going through, loved it, met you guys, which has been phenomenal. And I think we have a super great core of people that we graduated with that I still, we all still talk and still support each other. But taking the risk coming out of there was, again, a bit contrarian, as we talked about. Like There were kind of two, maybe three tracks, three tracks that folks kind of went down. It was investment banking and consulting. And then, of course, there were more folks going into the CPGs and more of the marketing side of things. But to look and go in with, again, this notion of like, in order for something to get done, and especially, again, in healthcare and for curation to happen against these communicable diseases in large scale, viruses that was going to have to come from the private sector. So for me going in there, I was like, okay, like I, I want to go into venture capital because I think that's where, again, we're going to find the large scale opportunities and that's where we're going to find real impact. So that was my focus going in. And I was able to, to land at an asset management firm coming out, went on to their portfolio company, and then just opened up any other opportunity. But it was very risky taking that pack. I can tell you that I was literally one of the last on that last tail end to kind of get placed. I mean, everybody's like, I got a job. And I was, I think it was February, March. And I was like, yeah, I'll find it. I'm still talking. Like there's a couple that could happen, but I had no idea if it was really going to happen. So I'd love to dig into that because I had a similar experience to you with my internship and it's fa it's fascinating how the market has changed, but everyone had got this internship and come like April, May, not by design, but just because of the toughness of the market. And I was an international recruiting in the States I was like this pariah because I hadn't yet secured an internship. And it was like, are you okay? It's like I was going to die. You know what I mean? It was like I had a terminal illness. It's like, oh, you haven't, it's April and you don't have an internship. It's really funny. But now 
because of the shift in the market, the development of the ecosystem, students are recruiting much more, much later in that cycle, right? And I think there's, especially now, that there's some lessons I'd love to dig into with your experience where you talk about going against the herd, right? And I think what you've seen over the last five years, especially, is a very buoyant tech market with large tech firms like Google, Amazon, Facebook, recruiting in a way that we were used to recruiting with consulting, finance, and marketing. And that has changed because obviously the market has turned down. And now I think not just existing students, but a lot of Kellogg alumni are faced with this challenge of how do you recruit into the hidden market? And I think that's something you did very well, as you're alluding to, where you didn't just go down that that corporate funnel of recruiting on campus. You had a sense of what you wanted to do and you kind of swam against the tide. So tell us a little bit about that, because when you joined Uber back in 2011, I think most people probably wouldn't have even heard of the company. And yet you were there right at the coalface diving in how did you kind of put yourself in that position and how did you evaluate that risk? It's something obviously you've talked about through this show, but with us previously, you are very attuned to that risk. Explain to us a little bit about that thought process. Yeah, no, it's funny. You were kind of a pariah because you're like, oh, you're in this group of students who haven't yet figured out like the landing that you're going to have. And it's funny because it's one of those things that Kellogg actually reports against. Like how many students graduate with a job and like, they don't want, they don't want that to change. They don't want it to be less than a year before. So they're really, they're like, you can go and get a job at Walmart in order for us to make sure that we have a 98% matriculation with a job. Yes. Just check the box for us. So I remember sitting in like one of these like late spring class rooms where they were like, it was like an advisor. Hey, are you okay? It's like, yeah, I'm still, I'm evaluating. Like, I feel good about my prospects. But yeah, I mean, again, measured risks, right? And felt comfortable in the risk state that I was in and that I had enough conversations that I felt like I knew how things were progressing. And for me to go to the asset management firm and be able to go into their portfolio company and help manage that was my, was me really looking at like, okay, there's an opportunity that's very different than others. And I'm not exactly sure how it's going to play out. It's really going to be like, should I be at a consultant? Should I go back to consulting? Should I go to investment bank? And I had, I'd gone through, I mean, like, I'm sure all of us went to a couple of those info, those info meetings and wasn't where I wanted to be. Yeah. And so, but being at a startup, this, in this particular, a portfolio company also kind of, again, brings that risk down that they're already have invested capital and a board that's going to support them for some odd period. So you've got that, that cushion. And so that's kind of how I evaluated that as I was going into that late stage of not having my, my opportunity sewed up. It's like, look, I feel like I'm managing this risk appropriately. And, and it worked out. Coming out of that, that experience has been about a year and a half, almost two years of managing a portfolio company as a vice president. And it, I mean, ton of learning. And that's kind of what I was after. I always say like undergrad is where you do learning and like your business school or your master's is where you apply that learning. It's application of learning, right? And so that was what it was. Business school was that application of learning for me that I had already picked up through consulting and through a master's and my bachelor. And I, but I still was like, ah, I got to learn a little bit more. And so going into a startup just forces you to just to learn to the max because you're doing everything. You're wearing a ton of hats and you're just, you're, there are, your swim lanes are wide open. You're having to do all kinds of things in order to dev the product, to market the product, to create marketplace demand, whatever it is, that's what you got to go and do. And so coming out of that, I was like, you know what? I want to kind of, I want to cut some of the strings that were tied up. 
I'm on a full blown startup that's not quite as cushioned as his portfolio company was, and I want to I want to go like literally seed stage Series A kind of thing. And I've been in the startup community around Chicago quite a bit, talking to a lot of uh, founders and entrepreneurs there, and uh, got aligned with Alan Penn, who had just started as the GM and at Uber. Just started talking. And he kind of told me about this, this Uber guys taxi company and like, oh man, here's what we do and like try it out. So yeah, I was like, okay, let me download this thing and push a button and this black car shows up. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to get in this thing. It, it seemed a little sketch, but I was like, all right, hey man, what's going on? I'm going to get in the car with you and we're going to ride over to the restaurant. And after that, I was like, this is actually kind of nice. Not really sure if because at that point, it was just black car. So I'm thinking like, oh, that's all. We're, that's where we're going to be. And really broadened my thinking into where else it could go. And I was like, this is cool. And so looked, then I really went into kind of diligent process of measuring risk. Where could this go? How, like, if this doesn't work out again for me, I have easy pivots. At least I felt like I had some easy pivots. At the time, I was actually working on my own startup and was going to try and take some funding. But as I was working, this felt like the next best thing for me to try and go do. So um, yeah, ended up meeting with Alan again, started talking about the opportunity, went through the interview process, met Ryan Graves, which was hilarious. That whole fly to San Francisco, step over boxes in this weird office that looked like, I mean, just nothing. And then same meeting, met with Travis Kalanick, presented, did a presentation for him, which he came in, looked at it, asked one question, was like, okay, whatever, and then left. Interesting meeting, first meeting with him, but he evaluated enough to say, yeah, he's good. So away we went from there. And yeah, I mean, again, like that risk was one that I measured and I didn't, I hadn't projected an upside like Uber, obviously. I don't think anybody can necessarily do that, but I felt like, again, there, there was enough, there was enough upside there and I was bullish enough on the idea in and of itself to take on the risk. How did you evaluate the offer once you got that offer in the hand? Because when oh, 10 years ago, you didn't, now I feel like there's such a preponderance of people who've worked in tech and understand something of the tech ecosystem. There's quite a broad network of people. But how did you make that decision about even allowing for your risk appetite? Like, this is the place for me to land off, out of you know, my, my portfolio company. That is a great question because that is, I mean, like, I didn't know, right? Like, I, I knew enough to do diligence, right? Once you, like, you, one, you feel compelled by the tech and the business idea and the opportunity, right? And so I looked at the specifics of it and so did my own evaluation of the offer, right? And then obviously a negotiation with how I wanted that offer to be crafted a little better so that I could, again, reduce my own risk, but then create more of an opportunity for myself. One, I was going to go lead the Dallas market. That had levels of risk. We had not been in any non-dense cities at that time. Most of the cities, there was maybe, I don't know, there was less than 10 at that point, all dense cities, San Francisco, DC, and we'd been in New York. I mean, I don't know, we were just in really dense cities. And so for me to, we were looking at taking on non-dense cities. So at that time, Atlanta came up. So I had the choice of Atlanta, Dallas, San Diego, or Denver. And Dallas kid born and raised, so Dallas was kind of a no-brainer. But you're looking at cities that all that didn't have that same level of density. So it was a decent amount of risk to look at that offer and say, okay, can I actually make this work? And then say, yeah, I think I can, given what I think I know and thinking like I'm pretty smart. Maybe I can cobble together the team and do some things that make this Dallas market 
really figure this thing out. But had to think about that and had to think about if I fail or if I fail, like what am I falling back to? Is this offer going to be enough for the period of time that I'm doing this that it makes me want to take on that risk? Is there enough meat on the bone from a salary perspective? And then how am I thinking about the equity? And I had to actually, I had to go to a partner at PwC say, hey, just chat on this offer because I don't know if I'm thinking about this the right way. I kind of gave him my like quote parameters when it comes to location, risk, salary, equity upside, vesting schedule, the whole nine. And ultimately, I was able to negotiate a salary that I felt was good enough. I didn't need like, I mean, I had pretty limited responsibilities and no responsibilities associated with me. You know, I had a partner rent. And so I didn't feel like I needed a salary. But what I did was lean into the equity. So I did negotiate less salary, more equity, but it didn't go bullish. I mean, to this day, I would love to have said like, man, I was like, yeah, I slashed my salary in half and just said, go double me up on equity. That didn't happen. I was conservative to an extent. I did take a little bit more on the equity side, brought my salary down because I only knew I only, I only needed so much to live. And to be honest, Uber wasn't offering that much anyway. So I was like, all right, well, take it down some more because I'm still eating ramen. But yeah, that, that kind of was my evaluation was doing the diligence, understanding the salary that I was going to need, talking to a trusted mentor, and then negotiating against what they said to put, my, to put myself in a position of comfort to take on this risk. In retrospect, how much did you evaluate Travis as a founder? Because I think this is something to be great for listeners to understand. When you're at an early stage company, especially, the founder has an outsized impact, as it does any employee, on the culture of the company and your experience. How did you make that determination about whether or not you might want to work with him and what criteria did you apply? Yeah, I mean, that, that was part of the criteria. Is that doing a decent amount of diligence on Travis? what I knew about the cap table and those who had invested. I did know that he had his previous Red Scour group, his company, and had some conversations with Cuban, who I had actually met and felt pretty good about Mark Cuban as a business-minded person, just being in the Dallas area and having a number of folks that I had networked with who I had gotten in touch with who also knew Mark. And so I had to kind of say like, okay, what? why would that fall apart? If somebody is as savvy when it comes to business and then honestly as successful as Mark Cuban and it didn't work out, what is the friction there? What's the beef? Do I need to understand how Travis is as a business leader and why it didn't work out with Mark? But I got a good understanding there. What I liked about Travis after doing diligence was like hungry was kind of a savant came to figure out even more than I even knew. But like I could tell through a lot of a lot of the research I'd done, this guy was super sharp, hungry, and willing to kind of bust down some walls to get something done. Now that has high levels of risk, but I was willing to take on that risk and get on kind of get on board that ship. The other thing was honestly talking to somebody like Alan Penn, who on the opposite kind of is Travis, super balanced, kind of methodical, sharp as attack. He's someone who I looked at and said, he's more like me. And he's also evaluated Travis in this opportunity. And his willingness to take on the risk was also a part of... So he's really kind of the person I would say who recruited me. And so I had a lot of trust in him. And then also understanding Ryan Graves, who he was. And then I also got to know Rachel Holt prior to accept and thought the world of Rachel. And so looked at the folks that were on board. There's some homogeneity between RGM group that I was able to meet along the way and us three right here on the call. 
business minded, kind of academic, good pedigree. All those people balanced out Travis and his just like aggression, raw intelligence, raw speed to market of things. And that again helped really evaluate that risk that kind of Travis has a sort of risk associated with him, but a good risk. Yeah, it's fascinating hearing you give that perspective because I do think something told to me by a founder years and years ago when I was first getting into startups 10 years ago was that the biggest risk actually isn't financial often with startups it's people because until you work with people you don't know really what the founder is like or you don't know who your boss really is until you get underneath them or they might bring someone in above you right so I think it's just really interesting to hear that evaluation and how you sort of calibrate it against other people and their perspectives of, of Travis as well. Yeah. I mean, you have to be careful with that, right? You do have to be careful with it. I mean, you find it quite a bit in the VC world, right? And as a, as an investor, yeah, a lot of times you can just, you can't follow the herd again, right? Like you, you see Sequoia, you see Kleiner Park, Perkins, you see Andreessen, just because they've necessarily put an investment against some startup doesn't necessarily, I mean, like you assume that they've done the diligence and they are good at it and they are, they're, they're pragmatic and they've done it. And therefore, you it, again, it makes you a little bit more bullish on that potential opportunity. But I mean, we've also seen, <laughs> whether it's Silicon Valley Bank or some of the other failures we've seen where big VCs have put into these things and maybe they didn't do the diligence that they were supposed to do. So you, have to, you do have to be careful with the outside information that you get. But I think if you get enough of it and it has a seed of similarity, then there's probably where there's smoke, there's fire kind of thing. Yeah, it's the, it's cutting. It's looking for signal and cutting out the noise, isn't it? And I think that's true of any product you're developing. As you say, Cuban and Travis may have a certain personal relationship, but you're looking for other signals that other people have the same issue. And if they don't, that gives you that reassurance. But it's interesting because I, I really believe that whatever organization you're talking about, the DNA of that organization is set by leadership. And what you're saying is Travis is like a natural operator, a risk taker, someone who's dynamic and fast to market. And you keep talking about risk. And it sounds like those qualities are what attracted you to joining Uber as well. And I'd love to sort of dig into your experience of how Uber entrenched in its DNA, that kind of risk-taking tolerance and that desire to experiment and move fast. Because you shared some amazing experiences with us around some of the early launches of product. And I'd love to talk about those with you and some of those experiences. And if there's any that stand out, perhaps we can sort of get into the anatomy of some of those risks that you took at, at, in the early days. Yeah. I mean, goodness gracious. I mean, when we talk about taking on risk, I mean, Uber was that. We did it and we did it on a daily basis, but we did it honestly and made it fun. Yeah. I like the best example is literally me receiving a, I was served a cease and desist two months after launching the business in Dallas. I mean, like, I mean, that, that's, that, that's really the level of risk that we're talking about, right? Like that you're going to start a business that in two months or less could potentially get shut down by the city. And not, I mean, this is competition, this is the city, right? So me being a Dallas kid, loving the city of Dallas and wanting to be a part of the community and impact the community, knowing that the mayor has just, well, the city manager has just sent me a, a cease and desist order. I was like, oh man, I'm on the radar <laughs> because of Uber. But it also is a signal of the impact that we were making, right? That, that there was something to what we were doing that obviously had an impact on the incumbents, on the taxi industry, which we knew that needed to get shaken up and that needed, that needed improvement. 
And so that's really, that was our first competitor. And then it became cars, it became Lyft or whatever the case may be. But yeah, a cease and desist. Two months in, my, my first kind of reaction was, oh shit. Like, I did I measure this risk right? Like, I knew that I, this thing might fail. I didn't think it would get shut down, but it could fail. I don't have that much money. I'm only taking a couple paychecks. So like, if I don't have a job, like I'm eating even more ramen. Like I'm going to have to recycle ramen. So first thing was like, hey, call Travis. We got it. You got to cease and desist. Like, let's get in a room and let's figure the play out. And so that's what happened. Sally Yu was there. It was our legal counsel. So it was her, myself, and Travis talking through the actual wording of the cease and desist to understand the timeline, how much venom was kind of being spoken within the cease and desist, and then how we were going to tackle it. Ultimately, that led to a huge undertaking. Spent the next year really focused on the impact of that cease and desist. The cease and desist, we ended up reacting to it by I had to sit down with the director of transportation, city manager, and we talked about what we do at Uber and how we felt different than the taxi industry. So that gave us that bought us time. They were like, yeah, maybe, okay, yeah, maybe that, that kind of makes sense, but we don't like it. Like, and, I, and taxi definitely doesn't like it. And taxi has voted for us and we've got some money from taxi. So we're going to continue to kind of ride you. But maybe you've allayed our fears for a second. So they couldn't really, they knew that they couldn't shut us down because we kind of we cut a line that really wasn't taxi. So they started stinging us. They had undercover cops start to ride in Ubers and try and understand what we were doing. Yes, you're a taxi. And yes, we're going to shut you down. I ended up going to trial by jury and taking a stand and having to obviously give my testimony for what is Uber, how we did business. The jury deliberated for about mm, 10 minutes max and came back with a not guilty. What was interesting about the trial was I was, as I was sitting and listening, was that they brought out a couple of the undercover police officers, very cloak and dagger kind of thing. They came out, took the stand. And one of them said during their testimony, they said, the question was asked, like, how was it? And they said, well, actually it was phenomenal. And they said, our attorney was asking, so would you recommend this to a friend or someone in your family member? And this person said, I would definitely recommend this to my friend. And I even see myself using this service again and again. And so I was like, okay, well, this case is done. I mean, it was like, it was one of the most, I mean, for the city, they were like, oh, shit, I can't believe it. that unscripted, like, who put this guy up here, right? Like literally it could have been our, felt like our witness, but that really helped win the day. We had a campaign as well that we ran through change.org. This is one of the plays that Uber did quite a bit, which was do grassroots movement, move the rider base in order to make the kind of noise necessary to get the city to, to understand what Uber did and not excise it from the transportation ecosystem. So in 24 hours, we ran this campaign. In 48 hours, we got 20,000 signatures. Each signature went into the mayor's email inbox. My, my, my sit down with the mayor afterwards, he called me a cyber bully. Cause he was like, you keep sending all these emails. I was like, well, I changed our works and you, those emails, not me, but okay. He and I have a good relationship to this day, but he wasn't happy during that sit down conversation. He was calling me a cyber bully, but it made the impact that we needed it to make. We were able to save Uber, didn't get the, obviously didn't get booted from, from the city. And then that led to an ongoing, another six, seven, eight months of deliberations where I went to meetings to kind of craft a ride-sharing ordinance in the city of Dallas. And so we were able to do that with both the city of Dallas and the city of Fort Worth. 
So, I mean, took on massive amounts of risk right out of the gate and again, accepted the challenge and was able to kind of beat it back. Something that really stands out for me about your experience with that cease and desist is the way in which it was used to actually connect with your target audience, right? That change.org movement really kind of energized, I think, the local population. But something that struck me is when you've told us stories about some of the other initiatives you've run as well, I think you yeah. mentioned barbecue and love to dig into that, yeah. is the speed with which you executed and the degree yeah. to which you really understood your target user to entrench that behavior, that habit of using Uber. And love to dig into that with you because I think that's something that people can learn from, that kind of experimental mindset and the speed of execution of things that any organization, I think, would envy. I mean, and tell us a little bit about that process, well, yeah. how you came up with the idea and like yeah. talk us through the execution of that. Yeah. I mean, 100% Uber was extremely quick to execute just about any idea because we knew that's what we had to do to stay in front, right? Because all the while the incumbents are chasing, but the city is kind of on you looking, but you have to continue to, to gain that rider base because that rider base is what you need to influence the rest of the, or the rest of the ecosystem. The more influence Uber had, the more they were going to be a staying power and the more we were going to be able to get the ordinances we need. Because, I mean, look, we had to go city by city crafting ordinances and that was, that's Yale. Right? I mean, that, that was difficult, right? Until then, Sally and the, finally the team came in and we did a state by state kind of campaign. We went by state and had to create ordinances and those trickled down to the cities. But we had to move quickly to get the rider base so that we had the influence and the impact that, that almost created organic lobbying efforts, right? So, yeah, I mean, that then led into all the other experimentation that we did. I mean, just true culture of experimentation at the highest degree. And we had super smart people. We worked with some of the smart. I still, to this day, worked with the smartest people I've ever worked with. They were at Uber for sure. I'm going to pull on that thread because I think it's important for people to understand, like when you talk about a culture of experimentation, what does that really mean? Because I think a lot of especially like traditional corporates or incumbent businesses talk about innovation and they talk about that sort of becoming like tech companies, but what, how, literally tell us like, what were the things you did to entrench that, that, that culture and enable that culture of rapid experimentation and iteration and learning about the products and features you were rolling out? I mean, it's just a number of those, like almost like cliche things, right? Being like expediting the inevitable, right? Like, and which is one of my favorite sayings. And I try to live by that to an extent, but also being comfortable making decisions with imperfect information, right? Like best idea wins, right? Like having a generally a flat org so that folks can always be heard, that they feel like they can be heard. And when all those things kind of come together, you can experiment. People can get into a room and say, hey, I didn't like how that worked. How about we try this? And you're like, oh, that's interesting. Let's go to market with that. And you go to market fast. The other thing, and by again, by being flat, we're also flat with our riders. I read for the first year and a half, literally every single piece of customer service that came in, like every feedback, because I wanted to know the pulse of my city, the pulse of my riders and my drivers. So I would literally just go and just go straight down the line with reading and understanding what people were saying, writing in about bad rides they had, good rides they had. That gave us more fodder. And a lot of people did that. And that gave us more fodder by which to experiment with. So when you're already set up to be flat, to make decisions and not, and not be necessarily get a slap on the wrist because you made a suggestion that doesn't really work, but it, it always was about more of 
being fair to those who have ideas and, and putting the best idea in front and seeing like, hey, let's go and see if that works in some small scale way. I mean, we did that like in business school. We, that's kind of the things we learn, right? We learn how to do market tests. We learn also when we're thinking about marketing analysis and how we actually cohort and think about, okay, you can run this test, but run it in a small cohort of people and understand what the impact is before you launch it out into the entire population. We were very good at that rapid fire kind of thing at Uber. And we were okay with if it failed. We just knew how to kind of pivot behind failures. And so that culture just bred. And, and honestly, to your point earlier, came from Travis, right? Travis was going to go and go into a city knowing that there's high levels of risk. But that's an experiment in and of itself. I mean, we had failed cities. We had Vancouver, right? We had, I mean, New York is kind of, a, but more like cities that we weren't necessarily going to be just right out the gate successful. Dallas, Denver, San Diego, Atlanta, non-dense cities. That's an experiment in and of itself with how good and how sticky the business can be in a non-dense city. And we were okay taking that risk and we were okay with experimenting at that level. And that just breeds into the culture of how people feel. And, and that makes it okay for myself and my team and Andy and his team to just take on risks that some, I could tell you when it failed. I mean, one of the fast, one of the ones that, and we came out and we did Uber Deeks, loved it. We kind of knew makeup of Dallas, there's some money here. People like to be seen. They're going to ride around. And, you know, I mean, like they want to live a certain, almost like an LA type life and it's okay. But I knew I could lean into that. So we rolled out this thing called Uber Deluxe. It was in the first year and I put a bunch of Bentleys and Rolls Royces, Aston Martins on the platform. We only had like 10 to 11. That was me testing whether or not one, there was demand for it, but two, also testing price elasticity, willingness to pay, right? Because those things were super expensive. I had per mile per minute ratcheted way up and we blew the thing out. I mean, it was like, it was incredible, right? Like we just made it as a special class. Tell us a little bit about what that was. Like, how did that work? Yeah. So you would open the app. So we did a little bit of demand. So we drove some demand on it. We made it such where it's like, hey, we got this special kind of like class of cars that's coming. We had a we had some marketing. It's kind of like a smoky picture of a car. And so folks that were signing up for Uber were like, what is this? Like, can I? And so, so you created some mystery behind the product. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And we and that exclusivity, because we were talking about like, you're only so many people going to be able to get this going to be short, short period of time, one day only kind of thing. And so we opened it that morning. And kind of said, hey, Uber Deluxe has landed. Get your toggle over because like you open the app and there was a, you just slide it over and it said Deluxe. And, you, and when, you, when you actually made the request, immediately it would pop up and tell you what car you got. And you, we already had teased the fact that that morning that you were going to be able to ride in a Rolls Royce, a Bentley, an Aston Martin. We also had a Mercedes G-Wagon. So we put these all on the platform. And so folks just lost their mind. They, I mean... They wouldn't stop pushing the deluxe button. Didn't care the price. I mean, you could go two miles and pay a hundred bucks. It was like, it didn't matter, right? Like, cause I was like, okay, if you want it, you don't have to pay for it. Yeah. I mean, the experiment worked very well. And that was one of the things where at that point it was like, okay, we're like, we may be able to do this particular promo a few times more before it kind of runs and it loses its luster a little bit, but we did multiple times, but what else can we do? And the next kind of big ticket item we did was Uber Chopper. And to this day, it is one of the things that I take a lot of 
a lot of pride in that because we talked about this a little bit, but like I had always said as a former athlete, like I want to make it to the front cover of ESPN. Now I figured going and playing ball in high school and like my dad was a professional football player. Like it was in my blood. Like I was going to be a pro athlete and be on ESPN the front page. I didn't think that I would get on the front page for anything other than being an athlete. But yeah, we launched a promo called Uber Chopper where a couple that we had really wanted to make a big splash around the NCAA football championship. And it was the first time it was ever going to, it was ever going to happen under the new tournament kind of rules. And it was happening in Dallas at Jerry's world. And I was like, Oh gosh, Uber, we got, like, we got to figure this thing out. We, this yeah, the we, maybe we can this do it. deluxe. Yeah, this is yeah. It. Like, maybe we can do deluxe, but maybe we can go bigger. So we did, we went bigger and we, we put helicopters on the platform and uh, flew people from, they got a nice black car ride from wherever they were to our field. They hit the chopper and then flew, kind of took them on a tour of Dallas and then landed right outside Jerry's world. And I mean, just, it was insane. The demand was insane coming from Waco, coming from Wichita Falls, coming from the surrounding cities. People were opening the app. We were getting the eyeballs that were just bananas, partly because I knew people were coming in. It was Oregon, I believe, and maybe Ohio State or Alabama. But we knew those people were coming in from all these cities. And so they were going to be taking Uber because so I think Uber was in at least one of those cities. And so we were going to be able to kind of absorb those, those customers and put them on something phenomenal. And it ended up on ESPN's front page. You literally went to ESPN.com. It was like the fourth or fifth line down. And it said, Uber basically delivers people in choppers to the NCAA tournament. And I was like, yeah, done. My check made on the front page. I'm not, but I'm not busting a Heisman. I'm not scoring a TV, but like, eh, I'm still here. So that was awesome. You're not tearing an ACL at least, but in the chopper, but it's fascinating here. You talk about this stuff because you often hear about now product led growth, right? And I see a lot of people say, well, if the product's great, you don't need marketing. And then there's sales led growth, right? But what you're describing to me, some of the mechanics of exclusivity, time constraint, promotion and the sort of the excitement and the aspiration of the chopper or the deluxe brand those to me are like at the heart great marketing ploys that married to a great product like uber which simplified that whole experience sort of this mobile device in your pocket that could conjure up some of this magic the two go hand in hand right and i feel like what you're describing is a company that's got a great product, but is also brilliant at the marketing piece and that marketing experimentation of understanding the needs of your customers and then thinking through how does that product actually surprise and delight with a chopper or with, you talked about barbecue as well. I love the idea of barbecue being delivered, but yeah, well, what, yeah, barbecue, barbecue was phenomenal. We pulled that out like really quickly was working with another local startup, kind of more of a startup lab called Dialexa. And so like, okay, we can deliver barbecue. It actually already done that. We had already pulled that out in Austin. So I knew that we could run that back. We want to do a little differently. So we actually did barbecue delivered via drone. And that was like, okay, we were trying to lean into like, okay, this other dimension, right? Like how, like can Uber do something? Spun that up really quickly, had levels of risk because we were going to have to work out how a drone was actually going to get food and all of that. So it took massive amounts of operational kind of like foresight and thinking through the complexities of that or to make that happen. So that again was testing the limits of what we could do. But when I think about speed though, and speed of experimentation, my favorite kind of example of that was something we did in Dallas called, we called it Uber Fire. And we literally made that up within, I think it may be a four or five hour period. What happened was that there was a big freeze in Dallas. 
And it, like that generally doesn't happen all that often. But when it does, it gets cold and the streets get kind of icy. But we had already messaged drivers like, look, the riders basically aren't going to move around. Drivers, you can like, again, like it's up to you what you want to do at the end of the day. But like, understand if you want to stay home, be safe and do the thing. But for anybody out there, okay, we're, we're, the, the app is not going to be off. So our thought was, as we're sitting in the office, we were like, what else can we do? And I mean, it took us maybe, I don't know, when we started, when we actually asked that question, we're like, what else can we do? It took us an hour and a half of brainstorming. And we basically said, you know what, let's deliver something. So what we did was just come up with a model by which we would deliver firewood and material to make s'mores. So basically went and bought a bunch of inventory, firewoods, a bunch of Duralogs and a bunch of s'mores making materials. And then we had like a little handwritten card that we put in the package. But we went to Home Depot, collected all the stuff, had we did a, a little bit of like thinking through supply and demand, what we needed. And uh, yeah, it was Great. I mean, we hung it out there. We told, we, we did it in app. We may have pushed a quick email. Uber Fire's here for anybody who wants to get a Duralog to help warm you up on this super, super cold Dallas day. We've got that. And we got a little treat for those who want to make s'mores. Literally happened that fast. Put it in app, quick toggle over, hit it. I mean, we probably did that day. We did a couple hundred deliveries. So we went through the inventory, had to go back to Home Depot and buy more inventory. Saw a bit of margin, but hadn't priced it for to make a bunch of money. Priced it for surprising delight, stickiness, loyalty, the culture of experimentation. What can we do? How can we do something nobody is currently doing right now? Something taxi is never going to do and something our competitor was not doing either, but that was going to make us, again, it just differentiates us. It makes us that much better at what we do as a tech organization. It's fascinating because you almost hear like the beginnings of Uber Eats, right? Some of these experiments around and just actually broadly Uber delivery right now, Uber's obviously expanded into multiple last mile facets of delivery. And I guess these experiments inform some of that broader vision potentially, but talk to us a little bit about the organization. So obviously very experimentation orientated, which I think when you're a bit of a smaller org, is relatively easy, but as you scaled, what were the challenges you faced from a leadership perspective? And how did you think about team building to, to put in place the infrastructure to continue that culture and make sure that you didn't lose sight of that risk-taking? Yeah, it's a great question because you can't do those things as you start to scale. You, you have to change the setup. And as we've all been trained, the focus of any company is to be profitable. And I think when you're in an early stage company, you're just trying to get a foothold in the market. You're trying to, to make a name for yourself such that you can get to that point of profitability as soon as it can come. One of the experiments we did that, that, is, that underlines that question is, so we ran Uber Pet. For, I think we might have been the first to ever do that. And it was just like, hey, we got like Dallas over indexes in ownership of pets. I know because I obviously have one, but like you see them walk, dogs walking, the cats, just, there's pets everywhere. So people want to move around with their pets. So the idea was like, okay, let's lean into that. There's, if we know that Dallas over indexes, then let's cater to that audience. Slide over, Uber pet. The folks that were there had volunteered to specifically take riders who had pets. We buy them like pet care kits and treats, things to put on their car seats and that kind of thing. Went well, good experiment. We did it for about, we hung it out there for about two week time period to see type of demand and price points and all that kind of stuff. Did well, but it's one that we look 
back on after two weeks and said, we could continue to do this. This is probably like going to generate us a couple million dollars in rev. At that point, that wasn't, we were beyond that. From a PL perspective, and we're talking 150 mil plus in rev, we weren't two, two, three mil. It wasn't enough to really make an impact. Now you're doing cost benefit analysis on like the potential lift relative. It's a different equation, right? That's right. And the cost of the distraction and the resources associated with actually supplying what we needed to, to hold that service up didn't make sense. Although it was a good service and people liked it, it, it cost benefit analysis was kind of upside down. So, and as you, as we scaled and got more mature, now early on, we might've kept that, like that, that might've been like, oh, this is something, maybe we can grow with this. Maybe we have, maybe there's other reasons why this is a good service to have as part of our portfolio of services. But at that time period, nice to have, but too distractionary, too much cost. Let's move on. And so we, we sunset that pretty quickly, that experiment and moved on and really focused on our bread and butter, double down on that. And one of the things early on that I was keenly focused on was profitability. I mean, Dallas is one of the first profitable cities at Uber, partly because we just, again, talk about over-indexing people. We have super high supply of black car. And so we were always able to lead into that highly profitable service versus the rideshare component, which had a much, much slimmer margin. But because we had that, we were able to always stay pretty solid from a profitability perspective and also ran kind of a lean team as well. So and that was always a focus, but that you internal to the organization, you could feel it changing. You could feel it changing where we did start to more centralize the teams. And so you didn't have a team in Dallas and you didn't have a team in Denver and you didn't have a team, I don't know, in Chicago. Maybe you could just group them all into a central team and start working kind of services out of one centralized way. And so now you're starting to really mature the organization, understand how you execute and not, you start pushing aside some of the experiment because you understand at that point what your bread and butter is, how you're going to make money. Investors are obviously going to have you focused on profitability and moving towards being a going concern as opposed to like, you don't need the sticking. You're not trying to prove yourself anymore. So we were, we did mature up that kind of like growth ladder that that startup kind of growth scale to one that was more mature and thinking more about profitability and less about experiment, experimentation and less about like managing risk. We kind of knew how to manage risk and now it was more about like moving towards a profitable organization. You talked to us a little bit about what you looked for in team members when you were hiring. What were the qualities that were important to you as you were putting your teams together? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, honestly, I mean, I attribute most of the success we saw to my team. I mean, like, again, I talked about it earlier, like some of the smartest people I worked with, I worked with them at Uber. And so my team and the folks that I looked at, one, I'm always going to look for somebody who is, who comes in passionate about the opportunity. Like, like there are some, I know in interviews, sometimes people can come in and it's almost like I have the pedigree. I have the skill set. I have the experience. Like that person's just sitting there, just, it's just kind of speaking in a way that is like, they feel like they've already got the job. I don't, I tend to not like that. I want to hear passion. I want to hear hunger. I want to know that this person's going to come in and have to work the long hours and do the grind, have the ruthless kind of approach to execution and the grit needed and that, that requires a hunger, that requires a passion. So you kind of can read through that in the way people answer their questions. But for us, you had to have a, a fairly keen grasp of supply and economics for me, for both from a marketing perspective and from an operational perspective, is that you just had to understand supply and demand. So that was one of the key things that I probably had. I wrote a business case that I would give to pretty much all the operation side folks 
and then had a market case. And, and both of them had airs of, do you understand supply and demand to a degree where we can talk about it very seamlessly? Because that was going to help you fit into this culture of experimentation and be able to execute really quickly. If you just, everybody's speaking kind of the same language. That was kind of part and parcel to me. You had to be highly collaborative. I liked people who also had hobbies that were outside uh, that, that just made them more of a well-rounded person. I myself am a liberal arts degree person, right? Like I majored in biology and psychology. I still sit on the board of my undergrad. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've been back to speak about what it's about, you know, the importance of not necessarily, or the impact of not necessarily being one track minded in my undergrad that I had a broad kind of approach to my degree and in my learning. And so I look for that also in other people and a lot of the employees that I had had, yeah, they were really good at what they did, but a couple of them built houses. Others were like into origami. <laughs> there was one who was like, like running like a boating business. So, I mean, like there were all these things that you're like, okay, you, that's weird. That's cool. I didn't know you were doing that. But that's odd, but love it because it, it just makes the team so well-rounded, so diverse. Obviously diversity as well was something that was super important to me, both gender and race. And so I was looking to just make the team as well-rounded as possible. It has to reflect our customer base. Yeah. And I feel like in a, even if you're a tech business, you're really a people business. You're fundamentally in a business of creativity and ideas and you want diversity of experience because that in combination with those experiences, you come up, I think, with better ideas, right? It was liking s'mores a prerequisite of working Uber. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you had to be, right? And again, like it has to reflect our customer base, right? Like, and when I say like drivers and riders, right? And drivers... We had a predominantly Ethiopian set of drivers in Dallas, especially the first the first black car drivers. And we had that population. And so I had to make sure that there were people that were going to be comfortable. And I had to have a, like an employee base that was reflective of some of that diversity as well. And so that's important to me. This is extremely important because people respect that kind of thing. I'm conscious of time. Andy, is there anything you want to dig into before we move on to the next segment? I've got one question I've been dying to ask you. So you talked a lot about kind of moving fast and innovation and things like that. It seems to, to me, and I've really enjoyed kind of going through memory lane with your stories is amazing. I think in addition to the culture and the people that, that Uber hired, there were some just structural decisions. You mentioned kind of the city as, as kind of a discrete unit for testing and things like that. And the approach of the GM, your role as the CEO of the city, and you had a marketing team for people who don't know, right? You had a marketing team and an ops team, support, like all the functions, right? Public affairs, right? And the combination of kind of distributed autonomy, like that kind of CEO of the city approach, in addition to, I think playbook culture, right? You mentioned meritocracy of ideas, best idea wins, and then take the good ones that happen in Dallas or Denver or wherever, playbook them, scale them throughout the org, right? And I think the third leg of the stool was kind of like this, we measured everything, right? But almost like kind of a leaderboard culture and then kind of a playful like competition between GMs. So we're, we always had each other's back. It reminded me of Kellogg and that team first and everything, but we still were competitive and wanted to really drive the business forward. Do you think that was just that mentioned, and I agree, that was such a special place and, and time and people. Do you think that that approach, maybe the, like those, that kind of strategic structure approach, is that replicable? Like if you've looked, you've invested in companies since Uber, you've run, you've run operations at companies that been a CEO since Uber. Do you think that thing, that is replicable or do you think that it was just kind of a, an unrepeatable kind of 
confluence of factors and situations? I would probably err on the side of it not being exactly replicable. I think we had a nice confluence of things that, that kind of came together that made that recipe work. I think you can do pieces of it for sure. And I think organizations should take pieces of it and run that playbook, that Uber playbook. But trying to do all of the things that Uber did, right place, right time, right piece of technology, allowed for that kind of approach to work. And so, yeah, I love everything that, that we did, but to try and replicate it inside another org would probably be, probably be fool's play. Yeah, and I think that's where... The DNA of the company is kind of set at birth to some degree, isn't it? Travis's philosophy in terms of how he operated, but who he hired reflected that philosophy to some degree. And it gave Uber that ability to actually scale that experimental mindset and the execution-oriented mindset. Both of you lived and breathed it. It's kind of special when it happens, right? And doesn't happen often. Yeah, no, it doesn't. I think one of the things I think in general are key kind of success points, I think, for myself are just, when I think about Uber and when I think about even Metropolis, which is after Uber and, and now Flow Hub, each one, I think it was about me taking on risk. And I think in each point, I definitely leaned into the opportunity to challenge myself and take on that risk. And Uber was is like, a microcosm of like, I mean, risk to the max for an organization, but career-wise as well. After that, I, I had kind of a nice landing pad, thankfully, where Metropolis and Flowhub, which is another kind of a step up in risk. It's another layer of risk. But one of the things that I think I've been able to do that's also a silver lining of taking on risk is learning. It's just like a continuous education on on business, just business ideals and how they all apply. Because one thing we know is that our environment continues to change and continues to evolve. And it just gets one ratchet up more complex, whether it's like new pieces of technology, AI and ML, obviously with ChatGPT and that coming on. Like That's just us needing to continue to lean into new opportunities that push our learning. And I'm really keen on continuing to learn because if we don't, like, then we're probably going to be dinosaurs as business folks. And so I really continue to want to challenge myself in taking on more risk because I know it equates to more learning and making me more savvy as a business person. So that's been a key really to my success because even as a liberal arts major, like I didn't go down a path, one specific major path because I wanted more learning of all the things. I want to be able to step into a conversation and have an idea of how to navigate in that conversation. I want to be able to adapt really quickly because I understand pieces of the organization enough to apply myself. And that's going to make me better at different parts of business as business continues to evolve. And so I, that, that is, it's kind of hard to pin down, but I know that is something that I continue to try and just do. I mean, I'm a, pretty average reader and I try to look for just new pieces of information that I can, that, that, that I can apply to my daily life all the time. I think I, I try to lean into that. Lay, part of being at a big growing company, when I started, it was got like 700 people when I left 25,000. So obviously as it grows there's and there's more kind of 
scale and niches and things like that. You had such a cool path that moving from GM to a couple other things. Can you talk about a couple other things that you did and maybe some of the learnings you got out of being able to navigate a growing org and getting to try some new things? Yeah. yeah I mean, you talked about being 700. I was like in the first 100, right? So it was like, it was very small org. And so what happened after about the fourth or fifth year, I became a dinosaur. Like literally I was like, gee, like yeah, go and ask that guy. You, yeah, you were that yeah. Go and ask that guy. He knows where that thing is. Like, <laughs> That's right. It was Moses. But like, you know, I mean, it was one of those things where it's like, okay, there, this organization is mired in the amount of things that it can do. And one of the things that was that we were still trying to do, we mentioned a little earlier, was just like having to go city by city trying to pass these orders. So we wanted to expand faster. And one way to do that was to get state-based ordinances put in place. So that gave, so, so we were leaning into a lot more of the state-driven regulatory stuff. So that that actually presented an opportunity for me to join and help drive at the state level for Texas to get an ordinance in place. So took that opportunity, loved it. Still talk to Chris and Trevor, love those guys and some of the folks, Travis, who I worked with there. And uh, we were able to get a state bill passed in Texas and ride share is legal in Texas. So that again is I, because I had been around and had success, I was able to take that opportunity and still loved Uber. So I was like, look, I'm a dinosaur, but I know that I can apply myself. So let's go do this. Did that. But right after that, was able to lean back into that culture of experimentation that Uber was always kind of going down. And one of the things that we were testing was, is there another dimension to transportation that we haven't tried? And so, yeah, we said, yeah, there actually is. And it's flying, right? So was on the founding Uber Elevate team, Mark Moore, Nikhil. Actually, it was a good crew of folks where, honestly, we didn't... We, Mark was about the only one who knew anything about vertical takeoff and landings. We got him from NASA. He came over and was like, hey, I built this thing. I think I can do this. Built it, but kind of more like a prototype, but was able to work in an entrepreneurial kind of role inside Uber with figuring out what it meant for us to lean into vertical takeoff and landing? And can we actually move people with VTOLs? And if we were going to do it, what cities could we do it in? What was the infrastructure needing to look like? What is a vertiport versus a heliport? What is a vertistop? What does a network operating center look like? So we had to put all of this together. And so that was super kind of exciting. And one of the coolest learning opportunities because yeah, I had been around planes before my mom was a flight one for flight attendants at S at Southwest Airlines. So I'd been around planes all my life, but never thought about like building these mini planes, so to speak. They've got like a propeller and they got fixed wings. So you get a little helicopter, you get fixed wings, and you say you get to glide. But building that inside Uber was pretty awesome. One of the things that we drove, even though as an organization, we don't, we're light on assets. So we're never going to necessarily build these things and hold them as inventory and have people, we were going to partner. But one of the first things we did was just, we created a think tank. We brought everybody together in Dallas, who was part of the vertical takeoff and landing ecosystem. And there's a lot of people out there. So a whole set, I mean, like it was just a group of nerds that just converted, converged on Dallas. And I mean, it was, it was just awesome. It was awesome to know that Uber drove that kind of influence to pull together something that was very experimental, but had reality baked into it as well. It wasn't EV. I mean, we're talking even more experimental than electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. This is vertical takeoff and landing. So I was able to be on that team and to do that and help 
made Dallas Fort Worth one of the places where we were going to test this whole thing out and loved that and gave me really a leg up into kind of aviation. And now I'm an investor in other vertical takeoff and landing companies and, and have loved being part of the boards. It's so interesting because how did that talk, talk us a little bit about the funding model for that? Because I've seen companies struggle with this idea of like, that's a you know, seeing it firsthand, that challenge of how do you encourage an entrepreneurial mindset when basically you've still got the traditional PL and all the politics and bureaucracy? How did how was that funded? What stage gating was there? Like what were the kind of steps you had to go through some of these proof of concept phases? It was slim funding. We basically had to do everything on on a shoestring budget. It was like, look, okay, but understand the idea. And Jeff Holden was really one of the one of the preeminent drivers of this technology, this idea inside Uber and Jeff at the time, I think it was our chief innovation officer. He was just like our key thinker. And so he was really driving, but at the time, but at the same time, he was like, look, we can't spend money necessarily on this shoestring budget, proof of concept situation. Let's see what we can drive. What it did was, I mean, it starts to test the imagination of a lot of other people in the ecosystem about what Uber is and how it can also be more than just this this just general transportation feature of a city, but can also lead cities into the future of transportation. And, and I mean, those conversations I have with mayors associated with vertical, t- like you could see their wheels turning and they just wanted to be a part. They were like, okay, even on a shoestring budget that we were on, and we knew that we couldn't spend. So I was taking meetings with mayors that doesn't cost you anything, setting up a few round tables, that again doesn't cost us anything. Some of the things that we did, uh, we did like a contest basically where we had some of the key design and architecture firms put together what vertiports would look like in these big, these big like structures where people would take an Uber and then get on a, a VTOL and goes. All these things were done on a very slim budget, and we knew we had to do that because we weren't exactly sure the revenue model that was going to be associated with it. So this was all okay. Let's get this thing to a point where we think we can execute on some revenue model down the line, but at the same time, not bleed the organization of dollars in a skunk's works kind of way. So again, we had lots of capital. We had taken a a few rounds at that point. And so we had a little bit to play with, but most of the other, most of the money was being funneled to our bread and butter, to eats, to freight, and even to our Thomas vehicle play. So it's almost like pre-seed funding for you guys to try and figure out like what is that model? I mean, it was, yeah, I mean, we're talking about safe of all safes. It was <laughs> like it textile was not stuff. Much. Yeah, yeah. It, but that's the right way to do it. That's exactly the right way to do it. Yeah. I mean, one, you're not a profitable organization, so investors don't have time for you to be spending a bunch of money on something that's not going to make you true revenue at the end of the day. Yeah. So it's like, okay, if you want to do this, you can pursue it, but here's the pennies that you're going to pursue it with. And, uh, and of course, we had stage gates. Okay, if you can do this, then maybe we'll push a little yeah. bit more dollars into the budget associated with uh, with Elevate. And we were able to hit these things. But revenue was still such a long way off that it was going to have to either get to a point of revenue quickly and pivot and probably become something else until these vehicles became certified or it's going to have to get sold off. Yeah. When you see Archer, I think they had like a two and a half billion dollar SPAC. Some of these companies, it's so capitally intensive to your point. But I think what you're talking about really is just 
reinforces that sense of a company that at its heart is willing to take bets and, and experiment, right? And really try and understand what they're getting into. Even as you got to scale, there's still that appetite to really test out different, different opportunities, different markets, different products, which is fascinating. We could talk forever about this kind of stuff, but I'm conscious of time. Perhaps I think, Andy, anything else you want to dig into on the VTOL side before we, we move on? Well, Lee, we're going we're gonna to transition to our big four quick fire questions. So first up, what factor has been most important to your success as a business leader? I'd say two factors because one of them isn't necessarily about me, but I think it's about the people that I've been able to hire, right? Like my teams have always been the keys of support and execution. And I think if you hire great people, you're going to get great results. And I've been fortunate enough to hire great people and the results have come from that. And I would say the other factor is just that constant, that thread that I continue to want to pull on risk-taking and learning, right? Like I know that by taking on risks, I'm forcing myself to learn. If I didn't take on risks, that would be an indictment on my career, right? Like I think the biggest risk is not taking a risk, right? So I think I'll continue to pull on things that challenge me and every time I overcome one and I kind of meet that challenge, it has success behind it. And so I'll continue to do that. If I don't, if I quote fail, I'm going to learn from it and I'll know how to approach that risk better the next time around. I think those have been the keys to my success. Yeah. Love that. What would you tell yourself from 10 years ago to avoid given what you know now? I remember when I was at PwC, I was a little bit of afraid of just even being promoted from like an associate to a senior associate because any senior associate meant that I was going to take on leadership role. And I had been a leader. I'd been captains of teams and I'd been like class president, right? But I don't know, in a business setting where there's money involved and there's there's real world dollars associated, I was a little bit, I wasn't super confident and like, am I that good of a leader? And I was able to take a few leadership roles and prove myself. But that self-doubt honestly kept me, it keeps me, it kept me humble. It kept me honest, I will say. But it may have also kept me from pursuing opportunities faster and being more aggressive and assertive with the type of opportunities that I could potentially have gone after early in my career. Now, look, I'm glad I landed where I landed, so I'm not complaining. But I would avoid high levels of self-doubt and increase the level of aggression and assertiveness. What don't most people understand about the CEO role? Man, I don't know how much people know about the CEO role. It is, it's an interesting role. You can be assumed almost like a co-CEO because you can liken it to an internal CEO and the, and the CEO is an external facing chief. And if you have a good partnership, it's a beautiful thing because you have to have a really good partnership with your CEO, because that's a nice split. If you can have one person who runs the internal workings of the business, generally CEOs are visionaries. The best CEOs are just pure visionaries, great salespeople, can get in the weeds, of course, because they know their craft and they know the business and they know the industry like the back of their hands. And they have this five-year vision always. The CEO has to be a little bit of an antithesis to that and say, Got it. I understand the vision. Reality says we ain't getting to that vision for another 10 years, actually. So we got to make this work right here, right now. We got to short the PL. We got to make sure it oper- that we're operating with levels of efficiency 
and that we can keep the lights on and keep this thing going and growing and going in the direction to hit that five quote five year vision. That's probably really a ten year vision. I think that's the reality of a CEO is that it can be thankless. It really can, but it is the internal working operator of the company. What one thing do you strongly believe that most successful people do not? Oh man, I, I think most successful people assume that there is a fair amount of work that is associated with being successful. But I wonder if they understand the level of sacrifice. I think one thing that I'm finding out now that I'm a new dad is you have to, you do have to have, you have to be okay sacrificing a, a considerable amount of personal life. And I think there's not always, I don't think there's always that understanding or that belief that, it, that it's going to require that much work, that much sacrifice. But at the end of the day, if you want to be successful, you generally need to, you need to work some long hours. There are going to be times when you are grinding to a pulp. And unfortunately, there's going to be times when you do have to, you have to weigh like, okay, I've got some personal obligations. I have a professional obligation and you're not always going to be able to choose the personal obligation. That's just the reality of it. That professional is going to win a few of those. You try and balance them, but whether it's month in close or finance, whether it's a funding opportunity or whether it's a huge client, like there are things that you just aren't going to be able to put personal in front of. And so I think maybe the true grit that's needed at the end of the day, especially when you have people competing for the, some of the same jobs or some of the same customers or some of the same opportunities that you may have. I think the level of sacrifice may not actually be as recognized as is the reality of what it takes to be successful, especially coming from maybe a position where you, you didn't have, you didn't come from the means. Like you, like I had one parent go to college. So that was great. That, that gave me a path. But you know, if you didn't come from a world where you had money kind of already to go to college and worked your way up, that, there's a real grind to success there that required levels of sacrifice and some long hours and, and working through, in my case, a lot of diversity issues. Like that, that there's, yeah, I just, I think there's a, an awareness there that, that might need to be higher across successful people. Cause I don't know that it was necessarily told to me in that kind of way. Final question. Yeah. So we're going to wrap. Is there any content that you really like or recommend that you find valuable, whether that be a blog or book or podcast, things that you listen to or read or enjoy consuming that has helped form your thinking that you would like to share with the audience? I mean, right now, what I'm reading most, and this is not going to help most people, but it's a bunch of dad blogs. <laughs> I mean, that's what's high on it's my It's going to help list. a lot of dads, if nothing else. Yeah, it helps a lot of dads, but it also helps balance my, it helps balance my thinking. If I did a bunch, and I do a lot of business reading, and so yeah, there's, I have Evernote, and so I will, I do kind of carry my notes and good thoughts and things like that across Evernote, but I think that's good. I think that's just prudent to do, but I got to understand like this whole dad life thing. And it's weird. It's super weird. Like to try and figure out where your value is. Cause I can't, I'm a pit crew at times, but I'm the fun dad. Right. And I'm trying to figure out like all these, I got an eight month old. So I'm coming into my own, I'm understanding it. And I think I'm getting better at it but right now. That's like top of due to my, my, my reading list is like, okay, I'll knock out a couple of dad blogs, see what the best is. Rachel's super hot right now. And I love Bluey. Louis is legit. And Layla, my daughter loves Bluey too. So those, 
that's working out. But the other book I'm reading, we just finished up, is a book called Premonition by Michael Lewis. Love him. Thinks he's a fantastic writer. And it's more about, again, this is, again, my my interest maybe in, in healthcare still just being there in undertone, but it is about COVID. Some of the things that were surrounding COVID, kind of the reactions to the environment, kind of this group of scientists that were working behind the scenes, of course, across to the Trump administration and kind of what was happening there, the dynamic. But I think it's a fantastic book. And so I would definitely recommend that. It's just pleasure reading if you have any interest in COVID and some of the things happening there. If people want to get in touch with you, how can they get? How can they contact you? Do you have a website? How can they check out your current business? Like, tell them where to go. LinkedIn, LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn quite a bit. Do a lot of just do a lot of reading there. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Just lay Andre Johns. Best way to, to find me there. COO at Flow Hub. I'm on Instagram. That's a good place to find a couple of pictures of me and my daughter and my lady and family. But yeah, that's those are the best. And if you want to email me, leandre.johns at gmail. Sure. But I would say LinkedIn is probably where I can at least say, hey, I know who you are. We can pass information and we can connect there from a business perspective. If people want to learn more about FlowHub, where should they go? Yeah, FlowHub.com. Yeah, look us up. I mean, it is cannabis is coming. The NBA just is passing new laws right now around players and about the use of cannabis basically coming down and saying like, it's okay. And we'll see more of that. Destigmatization and we're going to see more states pass recreational laws for cannabis. So we're on the cutting edge and yeah, we're right there leading the pack when it comes to tech associated with cannabis. So yeah, flowhub.com. Yeah. You find a lot of information there. Awesome. And perhaps we can get you back on just to talk about the cannabis industry, which you say is like on the verge and on the cusp of Uber style explosion, isn't it? I think given some of the changes that are going on. So that's a show unto itself, but it's been awesome having you on. Yeah, just no, kind of so much been, stuff. It's been great. Really yeah, appreciate thanks for you doing this. Us. It's been amazing. Yeah, no, it's been great. Like, there's no PTSD with Uber. Like, it's just some awesome times. And just it was watching the HBO special, that was a little different because it was fairly inaccurate. But again, it just brings back some really good business lessons, some fun times. And yeah, I love reliving those things and really pulling out a lot of the salient business lessons from there and other parts of my career. So I appreciate the time, fellas. Thanks for joining us. And that's a wrap on this week's episode of Adventures in Growth. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you were able to find some inspiration for your own journey. You can subscribe to our newsletter to receive fresh weekly content that deconstructs success in tech leadership by heading over to adventuresingrowth.co. Until next time, go have an adventure.